0: This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome to another episode of Bradbury 100. Now, you would hope, wouldn't you, that in Ray Bradbury's centenary year, there might be a new Bradbury book in the shops? Well, good news. There is. Hard Case Crime has published a new short story collection by Bradbury called Killer Come Back to Me. And my guest on the podcast this week is the editor and publisher of that book, Charles Ardie. Although we often think of Bradbury as a science fiction, fantasy or horror writer, he did write a lot of crime and mystery stories as well. All of them really very unconventional, of course. Uh, Bradbury just didn't have the kind of logical mind it would take to write, I don't know, Sherlock Holmes mysteries. But he did have the imagination to create unusual crime scenes involving serial killers, murderous babies, corpses, uh, conjoined twins. And Bradbury spent much of his early career writing stories for the pulp crime magazines. And in a surprise late career move, he also turned to writing mystery novels in the 1980s through to the 2000s. But again, always with a surreal or non-logical approach to them. Oh, and I'm not saying that as a criticism. It's Not that Bradbury didn't understand logic, it's more that he never allowed logic to drive his stories. He found that detective stories interrupted his creative flow because he had to stop and think. But Bradbury somehow had a very good run at crime and mystery stories in two years in particular, 1944 and 1945. He'd spent a couple of years successfully contributing stories to fantasy and science fiction magazines, with a long run of stories in Weird Tales in particular, and appearances in all those garish old pulp magazines with names like Thrilling Wonder Stories, Amazing Stories and Planet Stories. But then in 1944 and 45, he popped up in Detective Tales, New Detective, Flynn's Detective Fiction, Dime Mystery... He was still appearing in fantasy and science fiction magazines, but when you look at the stories published in 44 and 45, you find a lot of these odd little crime tales. Now somewhere along the line, Ray lost control of some of these stories. For the most part, he was able to get the copyright of his stories reverted to him. But with many of the crime stories, for one reason or another, this just didn't happen. And so by the early eighties, when Ray was at the height of his fame, someone else had control of them and wanted to collect them into a book. And Ray was initially hostile to this because he didn't think much of those early stories. But by writing an introduction to the book, emphasising that one of the stories, The Small Assassin, he considered to be one of his very best stories in any genre, he was able to Be at Peace with the Collection, and it came out in paperback from Dell in 1984 under the title A Memory of Murder. And the book had a lovely cover, presented very much in the pulp magazine style, showing a hooded skeleton tying up a scantily clad lady in front of a carnival, and the front cover subtitle said Vintage Gems of Crime and Terror by a Modern Master of the Macabre helping to tip the reader off that these were old stories in a new package. A Memory of Murder was printed only once, and Bradbury never wanted it back in print after that. But now, in this centenary year, word comes out that there is to be a new collection of Bradbury crime stories, and the rumour was it was just a repackaging of A Memory of Murder. But as you'll hear in today's interview, that just isn't the case. The new book, Killer Come Back to Me, does have six stories from that earlier collection, but it also mixes in various other stories with a crime theme from other parts of Bradbury's career. The hardcover has been packaged with some lovely new artwork, both cover art and interior art, and it has an introductory essay by John Eller, and Bradbury's memory of murder introduction is repurposed into an afterword. And there is also a UK paperback version of the book, although it's not quite so lavish as the American hardcover. Anyway, it's great to have a new Bradbury book for the Bradbury centenary, and it's great to see some of those rare stories being brought back into print. Well, now we can find out more about that Bradbury collection and about how Bradbury fits into the field of crime publishing with my guest this week, Charles Ardai. Joining me today on Bradbury 100 is author and editor Charles Ardai. Charles is an award-winning writer of novels such as Little Girl Lost and Songs of Innocence and of many short stories and he sometimes goes by the alias of Richard Alias. Charles also edits books for his imprint, Hard Case Crime, including a new book of Ray Bradbury short stories, Killer Come Back to Me. Charles, your work has many strands. Do you like to be known as an author, editor, publisher?
1: Uh, I like to be known as an author, but of course, the more time I spend editing, the less time I spend writing. I've uh, written five books of my own and am very proud of them, but I've published more than 100 in Hard Case Crime. And I think Hard Case Crime may turn out to be my legacy more than anything that's the product of my own brain. I've had the good fortune to work on manuscripts that were lost and left behind by authors who are no longer with us, like James M. Kane, who wrote The Postman Always Rings Twice and Double Indemnity, and died with a completed manuscript, but one that needed some editing. Were you
0: intimidated by that or did you see that as a challenge or, or what?
1: I, I was a little bit intimidated. I prefer to work with authors who are alive and with whom I can have at least an email correspondence, if not actual phone conversations or in-person conversations. One of the pleasures of editing Hard Case Crime is that about half the books we publish are by authors who are living, but the other half are by authors who have left us. And some of them are titans of the genre, like James M. Kane and Earl Stanley Gardner, people who sold millions of books back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, but are less well-remembered today even though, of course, Gardner wrote about Perry Mason and now suddenly he's on TV again, so everything comes around. These authors aren't a phone call away or an email message away, unlike living authors, and so they only exist for me as ink on paper. In the case of Kane, sometimes handwritten graphite on paper, and you feel a little bit like the archaeologists working on the Dead Sea Scrolls, picking apart a sentence here and a phrase there and making sure that they all fit together and can be translated for a modern reader. You try to preserve as much of the author's original work and original intent as possible, but put it together in a way that a reader can read, generally for entertainment, not an academic, doing a study of of an author's work. Now, none of that was was necessary in the case of of Bradbury. Uh, Bradbury's work has been so thoroughly cataloged that I doubt there's much left that is unpublished. And in the case of Killer Come Back to Me, which we'll talk about, of course, uh, shortly, It's a collection of stories that existed in final form. But one of the interesting things is that Bradbury himself kept tinkering with some of his work after it was originally published. So, for instance, the version of a story that appeared in a 1950s issue of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine is not necessarily the version that you'll see in a final collection like Bradbury's stories that came out either toward the end of his life or shortly after And of course, when he adapted material from a short story into a chapter of a novel like Dandelion Wine, quite a few changes were made. So we did have the interesting challenge of figuring out which version to publish, which version and why the changes and what would Bradbury have wanted. Uh, I wish he were a phone call away. I, I wish we could have reached out to him and asked those questions. So
0: how did you choose between competing versions of a story then? Did you choose to go for the earliest version or the preferred text? How did you go about that?
1: As a general matter, I would err on the side of the preferred text. However, when a story became part of a novel, so for instance, the short story that became a chapter of Dandelion Wine, it was clear that some of the changes made were made to fit it into the broader architecture of the novel. And so since we're publishing it in the form of a short story, we reverted to the short story form because it didn't have the chapter before and the chapter after support. There were cases where a small choice, a typographic choice, was clearly a matter of house style on the part of a magazine editor. Uh, Some magazine editors like a certain number of dots in an ellipsis. Uh, There are changes on different sides of the Atlantic for where commas go and what number of uh, strokes are in a quotation mark. Uh, And so that sort of thing we we just dealt with as house style and made sure that uh, they were consistent from story to story. You don't want to see variations halfway through a book. But in terms of the substance, there was no very significant editorial work required or appropriate. I think there were a couple of things that felt just like interesting or odd editorial choices. I think in the original magazine publication of the story that wound up in Dandelion Wine, the spinsters who go to the movies even though there's a serial killer out and about threatening them, they go to see Charlie Chaplin in one version and they go to see Harold Lloyd in the other. That's an interesting question. You know, obviously, Bradbury loved Chaplin. That was clear from many things he wrote. Probably liked Lloyd as well. But why make that choice, right? That, that change seems very subtle. And the only thing that occurred to me was that the Lloyd movie that was being seen was... I'm going to get the title wrong. Forgive me. It's the one where he hangs off the face of a giant clock. Uh, it's either safety first or safety last. The important thing was safety. And you have these three spinsters going out at the risk of their own lives because a killer is about... And so the relevance of the title in the case of the Lloyd was meaningful to the story and there was no equivalent echo in the, in the chaplain. So I think we may have gone with the Lloyd, but in any event, we, we made the best choice we could in each case. That was perhaps the most striking. I think in the sequel to that story, uh, The Whole Town Sleeping, and At Midnight in the Month of June are the, are the two stories. I think there's a glass of um, lemonade that one of the female characters is drinking when she heads out and the glass is empty in one scene and half full in the next. That's clearly just an error. I mean, that that, that wasn't a deliberate choice. And so I think we fixed that. But it it was all very, very small things like that.
0: I I noticed in the book you've actually put those two stories right next to
1: each other because, of course, one does follow the other. That's right. Right. The funny thing is that the history of the second story, the sequel, was that Frederick Dannay, who was one of the two cousins that together collaborated on novels and stories under the name Ellery Queen, a name that was very famous back in the 40s and 50s. Fred Dannay, in addition to his work as a writer, was the h- editor hands-on of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine for 40 years, uh, from 1941 until his death, I think, around 1980. And he went to Bradbury, whom he admired, and he asked Bradbury for a story. And I think for a long time, uh, Bradbury resisted. He didn't have an idea for him, or maybe the rates he was paying weren't high enough or what have you. But eventually, A suggested that there was a story to be told following up on at midnight in the month of June, because it, it ends very much in the Lady and the Tiger mode, where uh, I don't want to spoil the story, but you, you don't have closure on what happens to the character at the end of that story. And I guess Bradbury was taken by that idea and wrote the sequel specifically at Danae's request, and it appeared for the first time anywhere in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. And it felt like, since it was so clearly a direct response to the earlier story, the two ought to be back-to-back. I think we did something similar, although it was less compelling, with the two marionette stories that we published. The stories about a near-future society in which robots, androids, could be manufactured that look and sound and even think and apparently feel like human beings and there were several such stories. I actually don't remember. You may know better than I how many Bradbury wrote. Uh, there were at least three, and we only took two, that had a very strong crime component to them. You know, what, what would happen if you wanted to kill someone in your life and didn't want to go to jail for it? What if you had a robot commission that looked just like that person and was indistinguishable from that person, and you murdered the robot instead? Would that get your homicidal impulse out of your system and ought you to go to jail for it if you do it? And that, that's, that's one of my favourites of Bradbury's crime stories. So I was very glad that we could include it because there were two marionette stories we wanted to do. We put those back to back as well.
0: That was one I hadn't noticed that you'd done that. But yeah, I'm looking at the table of contents now and yeah, I can see you've done that.
1: The other pieces of the table of contents organisation, I'm, I'm a fussy fussy fellow and it doesn't always lead to any particularly noteworthy results. but the order of the stories, if any reader wants to, they can probably, after reading all the stories, reconstruct what was going through my head. Those two examples I gave were pretty clear-cut, but you'll notice, for instance, that there are three stories in the book that have trains as a conspicuous element. This is one of the reasons we had a train painted on the cover. These are not steam locomotives as in the Wild West, so we took liberties in the art. These are more like Amtrak trains, but... The three stories involve train journeys that are metaphorically journeys into the past or into the unknown. And I thought, what do you do with three train stories? Do you run those back to back? Well, that could be a little tiring. So what I did was have one open the book and one close the book and one come at the geographic center of the book. So the book is cross-cut like a continent with train voyages. So th- those three stories then are a touch of petulance
0: to open the book yeah. Um, utterly Perfect Murder, to close the book. Yes, and, that's right. And The Town Where No One Got Off.
1: Very good, yeah. very good. <laughs> yes, those are the three that have trains in them. And uh, normally you might think, well, who, who needs three train stories? Well, the train isn't the point of the story. And those three are three of my favourites in the book, so I couldn't lose even one of them. So all, all three made it in. And then within each section, between the, the first and second and second and third train story, as you read, you'll find... Uh, common threads. So for instance, you have several stories where the narrator is a child or the main character, the viewpoint character is a child. There was a thematic connection that made me happy to see those stories back to back. There's a story toward the front, I believe possibly the first story, Touch of Petulance, where there's a reference to a certain school. And in a subsequent story, two or three stories on, called The the Screaming Woman, or is it The Screaming Lady? Forgive me, my memory for titles is dreadful.
0: (laughs) Screaming Um, Woman.
1: Screaming Woman. There is a reference to the same school. I think there's a teacher or a student from the same school that was mentioned in the first story. That wasn't something we added or edited in for, for amusement value. That was there in the Bradbury original. And I suspect that no scholar of Bradbury's work ever particularly picked out the uh, fact that this school gets mentioned in multiple stories. Well, now you'll have the opportunity because you'll see them in close proximity. So these are just little fun games. I mean, in the end, each story stands on its own and they're just wonderful, concise, concentrated bursts of storytelling eloquence and power. And that should be the dominant way in which readers relate to them. But having read the book once, you have the secondary pleasure of going through it again for all these small interconnectednesses that make the Bradbury universe a little more intricate and fun. Yeah, that sounds really
0: good. I I hadn't noticed some of those things. makes me want to go and read it all now from cover to cover.
1: I feel the same way, even having read it now several times in the course of the editing of it. I think close reading is a pleasure, and very few authors reward it the way that Bradbury does, because sentence by sentence and word by word, he puts such obvious care into the selection of every phrase. You owe it to the man to read with the same loving attention that he put into the writing.
0: Now, I noticed you've got some quite familiar stories. So something like The Small Assassin has been anthologized countless times over the years. But you've also got some sort of obscure things in this. The, the title story, Killer Come Back to Me, I don't think has ever been collected in a Bradbury volume before. So how did you strike the balance between the classics and the less familiar?
1: it's an excellent question. You know, the, uh, the title story was his first crime story ever written or at least ever published. And so I, I liked having that as an anchor story for that reason. It's obscurity was another reason I wanted to give readers a chance to discover some works that they hadn't read before. Uh, and those are rare. I worked closely with Michael Congdon, Don Congdon's son, who's been the agent for Bradbury and Bradbury's uh, estate for many, many years. And he brought in Jonathan Eller from the Bradbury center. And together, we did a kind of round-robin of suggesting stories, emailing stories to each other to read or reread, talking with each other about the merits and relative strengths of different stories. Uh, it really was quite wonderful. It felt like something out of my college days when you'd have a bull session with really smart people who cared about a subject. And in, in, in a sense, this book had three editors. None of us credited, because it's not about the credit, but it, we had a lot of fun putting it together. And I think Eller was the one who suggested the title story, not necessarily as the title story, although it became apparent that it would be a good choice for that. And he talked about how it had appeared in one collection, but a collection that has only been seen really by academics. Uh, It was published by an academic press. The cost of one volume is quite high, as academic presses work often is. And so I'm confident that no... A mainstream reader would have it on his shelf. I don't have it on my shelf. I only had access to it because of Eller himself. And so this, while not technically the story's first publication, or its first anthologization, to coin a term, or, or to merely mispronounce it, I think it is the first time the story has been brought to the attention of the wider public and the wider audience. So I, we feel like it's discovering a lost story, even if it's not completely lost. It's a little bit like the Easter Island heads that have bodies under the ground and had to be dug out. You, you, everyone had seen the head, but you want to show people the body as well. And that's how we thought about this. You know, The Small Assassin, in an earlier volume of stories that Bradbury allowed to be published once and only once in his life, called Memory of Murder, in his preface to that anthology, he said he felt The Small Assassin was one of the best stories he ever wrote in any genre. Having given that story the, uh, that level of praise, And since we were planning to reprint his preface to A Memory of Murder in this new volume, we couldn't leave it out. It it would be cruel to let people read Bradbury's own assessment that it was one of his very best stories and then not publish it. Uh, Perhaps the Dandelion Wine chapter would be the next most well-known piece of writing because of course, so many millions of people have read Dandelion Wine. And there are one or two others that I think people may be familiar with, perhaps because they saw an adaptation on the Ray Bradbury Theatre TV show, for instance. So there are a handful of stories, perhaps half the book, that people might have a good recollection of and feel fondly towards and be happy to see again. And then the other half is going to be work that is likely to be far more obscure, stories that came out of uh, very old pulp magazines that haven't been reprinted or were a one-time appearance in a magazine like McCall's and have generally either not appeared since or only appeared on page 372 out of 1,000 in, in a volume like Bradbury Stories where everyone enters the book with the best intention of completing it. But realistically, we realize that most people will go through the first dozen stories and never make it to the last dozen. Uh, or they'll they'll pick the best known ones from the table of contents and read those for the sheer joy of it. But we know that uh, many stories in a 100-story anthology never get read. And so our goal was to make this not a 100-story anthology, but a 20-story anthology where every story shines and every story will get read and enjoyed. And uh, roughly half of them Are familiar and half are unfamiliar. You know, when we first considered doing an anthology, the natural and easy thing to do would be to pull that old volume, Memory of Murder, ask Ray's daughters for permission to reissue it. But I didn't want to do that for the obvious reason that Ray didn't want it reprinted. He made it clear. And reading the book, you can imagine some reasons why he might not. The best stories in that book, like The Small Assassin, are really terrific. Uh, And there are perhaps half a dozen of those that are really, really good. But then the other dozen were varying degrees of quality. These were his early work, some of them were journeyman work. Uh, and he describes it himself as writing every, every day or two he would sit down and start a new story and they wouldn't all be good, especially when he was a young man and hadn't learned his craft yet. Uh, they all had a sentence here or a sentence there that was truly Bradburyan and wonderful, uh, but they didn't all have as many of them as he would have been proud to, to display. And so I don't think he wanted some of those stories to be his legacy to the world, and we certainly didn't want the weaker of those stories to be what people thought of as Bradbury's contribution to our genre. I think people will go into a crime collection by a science fiction writer or a fantasist expecting the work to be of a second-rate quality. They'll say, well, sure, Isaac Asimov also wrote a mystery novel or two, but they weren't the equal to his robot novels. Of course, they forget that the robot novels were detective novels, too. But they're, they're right in that case. And here, what we wanted was to showcase the 20 stories that Bradbury wrote in this genre that were the equal of the very best work ever written in this field by anyone, by authors like Roald Dahl, uh, who was also not known primarily as a crime writer, or, or, or someone like William Faulkner, who is of course known as a literary author, but also won second prize in the Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine competition in 1948. Uh, Now you might ask who won first prize? That must've been some story. It was a a science fiction writer named Manly Wade Wellman. Faulkner never never lived it down. But um, you know, a writer as good as Bradbury or as good as Faulkner can turn his hand to a different genre out of love and out of personal passion. And produce something wonderful and and I think what Bradbury brought to this genre as he did to fantasy and science fiction was not just the lyrical quality of his prose which equals the finest poetry at its best but also the emotional tenor of the work very often in an, even a good mystery story you know the best of the Sherlock Holmes stories you don't really feel a much emotional tug from them I mean I suppose some people will thrill to the chase between Holmes and Irene Adler but it's not the same when Bradbury writes a crime story, it's heartfelt in a deep way that you don't see very often, even in good mystery writing. And so you'll choke up when you read this collection, when you get to the the last two stories, they're deeply emotional. Uh, The crime element is subtle, and the characterization is thoroughly realized. And you you say, this is what a truly gifted writer can do uh, when he chooses to write a story that has crime at the center of it.
0: That's really pleasing to hear you say that, because One of the criticisms that's often levelled at Bradbury is that he doesn't really do characterisation, and that's something I've always argued, that that's not the case. Read many of his, certainly his early short stories, and the characters are exquisitely crafted,
1: I think you're right. I mean, heaven knows there are stories that are a little bit more of the twist in the tail variety. Even in this collection, you'll find some where the fun of it is the clever reversal at the end and the characters are in support of that. And it's an eight page story or a 10 page story and how much characterization can you do? But if you get to, in particular, I think the last two stories in this collection, some live like Lazarus is a longer story. I think it originally appeared in Playboy, if I remember correctly. And the crime in the story may or may not even take place. We get to the end of the story and we don't know whether someone has been killed or not, although a a criminal has nominally confessed to it. And what makes the story wonderful is the decades-long relationship between the female protagonist and this man who she's seen grow from a young boy to a young man under the thumb of a cruel older relative and never free to pursue his own wishes and his own life. Uh, never free to be with her. And the entirety of the story is the development of those characters, the growth of those characters, and a decision that the woman makes at the end of the story, what to do uh, when the man is finally free. And that's all character. And the last story, again, without spoiling any of it, the last story is a man who sets off on a train trip uh, with the intent to commit a murder. He gets to his intended victim and makes a decision. And it's the the nature of that decision that leaves you in tears. Uh, And it left me in tears. I'm a hard boiled crime writer and I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that when you get to that story, it encapsulates in some real sense, all of childhood and all of growing up. And it does that somehow in 10 pages or 12. And it leaves you teary eyed because you recognize something of yourself in it. And no one who reads those two stories can tell me Honestly, that Bradbury didn't do characterization because those two stories are nothing but characterization, with the mystery being an excuse for it. And so I think people are simply mistaken. You can find counterexamples, of course, but there are definitely Bradbury stories in this book and elsewhere that leave you feeling you've met someone you know. And that is what characterization in writing is.
0: I think that with the case of the utterly perfect murder, I think you feel for both characters at the end, strangely, even though it's concentrated on that one man going on that journey. We actually feel sorry for the other guy a little bit as well.
1: Oh, very, very much so. You know, it's, it's the story of the football player who's a star at age eight and maybe a star at age 16. But by the time he's 48 or 46, he's a has-been and washed up and still in the same place he grew up without any progress or any contentment and perhaps felled by physical instability maybe the kid he bullied has outstripped him and and led a better more satisfying life and that's that's the human tragedy in in a nutshell i think we're all one or the other of those characters and sometimes both and if you can't feel for people going through those transitions and discovering those truths about themselves i don't think you can feel at all tell me about the artwork for the book So we have three artists involved with this book. On the front cover, most prominently, you see an absolutely gorgeous montage painted by Paul Mann, who's probably best known for the posters he does for uh, movies. Not so much the posters that actually appear in the theaters, if there are ever theaters again, but sort of collectible posters done after the fact that fans really love. And he's done everything from famous uh, characters like James Bond and Indiana Jones to more obscure things. He's a brilliant artist. He, He lives in Utah and... Uh, really took to this assignment. The, the trick is, if you have a book that's all about one thing, you paint a picture of that and you're done. But if you have a collection of 20 stories, what do you paint a picture of? Do you pick one to focus on, or do you find elements from all? And here we picked out a few elements that I identified as common. The, the three train rides, of course. Bradbury has uh, had a lifelong passion for the theater, uh, the, the carnival arts. There's a story in the book that has sunken circus wagons, and another story taking place inside a carnival. Another that's about a ventriloquist uh, who does uh, kind of vaudeville shows. And so the circus wagons felt like another element to put on there. And then the underwater component, it's interesting to see that in maybe not all the stories, but probably more than half, there is some reference to things being underwater. I don't know why. I haven't really figured it out yet. But it, it can be literal, as in a story where a gangster talks about a sunken cathedral off the coast of California, Or the sunken circus wagons, which turn up in another story. So that's literally underwater. But there are other times, like when a bank robber goes into a bank, and he's about to pull his gun, and he talks about how the tellers are moving and speaking as though they were underwater. And there are a number of stories where things that are not literally underwater are described as being as if they were underwater. So I thought, let's put this whole cover underwater. And let's see what it would look like if these dreamlike elements surface underwater, perhaps in the way that dreams surface in your brain when you are under the cover of sleep. Uh, and Paul did a beautiful job. The colors are great. The, the sort of plaintive look on the uh, woman who's sinking underwater is beautiful. Uh, we're thrilled. And then we supplemented the cover art with something like a dozen interior black and white line drawings by two artists, Rob Gale and Dina Soota, two very different styles. We gave them each about half to do. I think one did five and one did six. And uh, we thought, let's take advantage of those uh, cases where this is going to be production nerdery uh, that no one else will care about, but where one story ends on a right-hand page and you don't want to begin the next story on a left-hand page because that looks techie. And so we begin every story on its own fresh right-hand page, but that means that in some cases there was a blank page on the left. And I thought, you know what, let's not have it be a blank page. Let's put an illustration there. So we picked out all the stories that had a blank page, and we put an illustration. Uh, and those came out really, really terrifically. The advanced copies we printed didn't have those uh, line drawings in them because they weren't completed yet. Uh, but the final edition, which is going to be very handsome and done on good, thick paper so that the art reproduces well, uh, will have all those illustrations. There will be 11 or 12 of them. I, I think it adds a little bit of a for the reader to enjoy.
0: I look forward to seeing that. I've only, only seen the preview copy without the artwork in it so far.
1: I think possibly one or two might be on the Amazon page for the book, just as a teaser for people to see. But certainly they, are, they aren't all there. And uh, we're, we're very pleased. One of the artists, Rob Gale, is now working on interior illustrations for a hardcover edition of a new Stephen King novel we're publishing. We just announced it yesterday. The book's called Later. And we thought, let's give that some interior art as well. Uh, But he hasn't drawn it yet, so I can't tell you what it looks like. But we we, we don't do interior art very often, but for very special books that we want to really have a a little bit of extra collectible flavor, uh, we'll we'll do it from time to time. And it's a pleasure. I I love working with artists. You know, my reason for starting Hard Case Crime originally was to publish the books because I love the stories and I love the characters. And I want to write some books for the series myself. And starting it was an excuse for doing that. But it turns out to my delight and amazement that working with the visual artists, the painters and uh, illustrators has turned out to be in some ways an even greater pleasure because I have no talent of that sort whatsoever. I can write a book and I can edit a book, but if you put a pen in my hand or a paintbrush, you'll get nothing good to see. Uh, so getting to work with talented painters like Paul Mann or Gregory Manchus or the legendary Robert McGuinness who painted all the original James Bond movie posters in the 60s, I've gotten to participate in the painting of 120 or 130 covers and oh what a what a treasure that is.
0: How is the book business doing in terms of selling physical copies of books? Are things buoyant for you?
1: How is any business doing you know for, for a few months there there were no bookstores there were no stores I think unless you were selling prescription medicine or toilet paper there were no stores you could go to no bookstores for sure and it was heartbreaking But now stores are starting to reopen. New York, for instance, where I live, is perhaps past the worst of it. Uh, We'll see if that's true. Uh, But a number of stores have opened. Unfortunately, even if the store is open, not that many people necessarily want to go out and visit it. People don't want to get on the subway in New York and don't want to ride buses and are still staying indoors. And to the extent that people are out of work, they don't necessarily have free cash to, to spend on luxuries. And I like to think of books as essential, but certainly food comes first. Um, So I I understand why sales are off, and they they, they certainly are. But I think that a book like this, which was never intended to sell a million copies or be turned into a movie, instead will sell thousands of copies, but to thousands of truly passionate, caring fans of Bradbury's work, possibly some casual readers as well, but especially the hardcover edition with the interior art and the, the ribbon to mark your place between stories. That feels like the sort of thing that, a true Bradbury aficionado would treasure. And I hope that they get the opportunity to add it to their collection, notwithstanding the peculiar and frightening state of the world. Uh, I think this is a good time to close the doors and windows and turn on a light or light a fire, uh, preferably only if you have a fireplace, and uh, sit back with a book and read. And it's not as though Bradbury's stories aren't disquieting. I don't think Bradbury wrote what you would call comfort fiction. I think discomfort is as often his goal, and especially in crime stories. But all the same, you get a kind of profound pleasure out of reading the work of someone who uses language with the virtuosity that a Heifetz or an Itzhak Perlman brings to playing a musical instrument.
0: So do you have a background of reading Bradbury yourself prior to this book?
1: Well, like every uh, child in America, I was told by my teachers to read certain classics. I think the first I remembered was The Velt. I think every child in America reads The Velt. And if there's ever been a more troubling revenge fantasy of children who want to make their parents go away, I don't know what it is. There were stories like that uh, that led to collections being uh, given to me on birthdays, like The Illustrated Man and Artist for Rocket and, and, and so on. And I read my way through those. It's one of the interesting things about Bradbury that a little bit like Harlan Ellison, who was another outstanding fantasy novelist uh, who had only written I think in his life three novels, Bradbury is thought of as a great novelist and he was because Something Wicked This Way Comes is a great novel. Dandelion Wine of a very different sort is a great novel and needless to say Fahrenheit 451 is a great novel, but he had very few novels in him. That's the extraordinary thing how few novels this great novelist wrote. What he wrote in abundance were short stories. This was true of Ellison as well. And I think of Ellison and Bradbury as masters of the short form, even more than long. Uh, They seemed at home there. Their brains were so fertile that they came up with ideas for exquisite short stories far more rapidly than they could possibly write uh, novels. If you only come up with ideas for novels in a lifetime, how many can you write? Uh, Even someone prolific like Stephen King has, has written dozens of novels, but it's only dozens. And Bradbury wrote hundreds of short stories. And so I think of Bradbury's short stories as his gift to the world. And, and if
0: you could only have one story that you were allowed to go back to, what would that be?
1: You mean know, the classic desert island question, if you could bring one thing to a desert island, you know, it feels as though the correct answer, or at least the, the witty and ingenious one given Fahrenheit 451 is that I ought to commit all of Bradbury's work to memory because what if at some future date, all that's left is the bardic tradition so I could sit around a fire with people who hadn't heard them before and, and tell those stories. I think it would be awfully hard to pick just one. Uh, would you be able to? Could you Could you pick one Ray story that would be the one you'd keep if all else was gone?
0: I could pick one. But if you ask me again in 10 minutes, I'd give you a different answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I can see that. And, and certainly I could do it for a certain mood or a certain day. If I had to... Uh, pick one from this book. It's interesting because of course I go back and forth and some of the stories are just fun and but you wouldn't pick them as the single best in the book. They're just good reads. But there, there are a couple that, that do stick with me and Some Live Like Lazarus is probably the one that I would pick. It feels like you get a whole novel's worth of story and a whole novel's worth of character in a very small number of pages. It may be 20, but it's not a short short, but it's, uh, it's certainly no novel. And when I was working on the book, I was invited to write a story for an anthology that Lawrence Block was editing. It was a collection of stories inspired by works of art, nominally by American artists, though I chose Piet Mondrian, who lived in New York. I had the Bradbury story as an example before me, and I thought, can I tell a story that has a whole life in it in only 10 pages? So you start when a girl comes to New York and she's 20 or 21, maybe not even, maybe she's still a teenager, and you end with her death in her extreme old age. So it's World War II when she first shows up in Times Square, and it's the present day today when she reaches the end of her life. And how do you tell that story in 10 pages and make it feel not like a schematic? And I just closed my eyes and trusted to uh, Bradbury to be my guide. I I didn't copy his story, of course, but, you know, how do you do that? How do you move from paragraph to paragraph and make a lifetime pass? Bradbury has so much to teach the writer who reads him. And I don't doubt that he has much to teach anyone who reads him. But if you're a writer, going through those sentences and those paragraphs and seeing what he does and how he does it, that's a master class. And I wish I had had the chance to get to know him. I had one interaction with Bradbury, very, very remote, when I was a teenager. And I was working as an intern, unpaid, at Isaac Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine, which was published in New York, where I live. And there was a decision made to create an Isaac Asimov branded board game where you would go from planet to planet trading various goods. And as an in-joke, the planets were named after famous writers other than Asimov. So there was, a, there was a Heinlein planet and a Bradbury planet and so on. And we felt we shouldn't do that without getting the writer's blessing. And most of the writers were people that we worked with daily and could easily just pick up the phone and call. But Heinlein we had to write to. And Bradbury, we had to write to, he lived all the way out on the West Coast. I don't know if he ever came East. And I was the poor sock given the assignment to get in touch. And and I wrote him a letter and said, Dear Mr. Bradbury, I hope you won't mind. I hope you don't think this is an imposition. I'm sure you couldn't care less, but there's this board game and there'll be a planet called Bradbury and its chief export will be dandelion wine. And uh, he wrote back a lovely little note saying something like, well, if Isaac wants to do it, I'd do anything for Isaac. That was my entire interaction with Ray Bradbury from the beginning to the end of my career. But it was generous of him in a modest way. And somewhere, I think, in my bookshelf, I still have that handwritten note. But embarrassingly, I don't know if I could put my hand on it if I had to.
0: What about the game? Uh, Can you still get the game?
1: You know, I don't think you can. It was an old-fashioned board game with wooden pieces published by a company that I believe still exists called Steve Jackson Games. The final name of the game was Isaac Asimov's Star Traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, not Traders Like uh, People Who Betray You. You can probably find it on eBay. It was a fun game. I remember playtesting it to see if it worked and it worked and uh, we had a lot of fun. I think at one point, Isaac came in to play it with us and we took some photos of it. It's been a treat. You know, I began young. I guess these guys did too. Bradbury started as a writer very young and Isaac did. And I had the privilege of getting to know them. And I feel in some ways, Hard Case Crime is a piece of that where I got to work with writers that I love. Some died too soon. In other cases, I got to work with them before they died. So Ed McBain, whose real name was, uh, I was about to say whose real name was Evan Hunter, but that was also not his real name. His birth name was Salvatore Lombino, but he changed it to Evan Hunter. And then he wrote under many, many names. Uh, Donald Westlake, uh, Michael Crichton. These are writers who, had I started Hard Case Crime, even a few years later, I wouldn't have gotten to meet and talk to and work with. It's such a treat and such a privilege to go to a guy like Michael Crichton, who had made millions of dollars with jurassic park and so many other great successes and to say to him uh, mr crichton i should have said dr crichton since he had gone to harvard medical school but in any event mr crichton do you mind if we reissue these eight books that you uh, wrote when you were in medical school and you wrote under a fake name because you were afraid that they'd kick you out of harvard if they knew you were writing sexy pot boilers on the side Uh, and you never allowed to be reprinted never not once Uh, And to have him look at our books, our covers, and say, oh, my goodness, if you promise me a cover that looks like that, I'll let you reprint one of them. But you can never tell anyone, as long as I'm alive, you can never tell anyone that it's me. You have to publish it as John Lang. And I remember saying, if we publish it as John Lang, you know we're only going to sell 5,000 copies. And if we publish it as Michael Crichton, we'll sell 50,000. And he said, I don't care. I, I want it published as John Lang. And we'll just do one we'll test it out we'll see how it goes and then after the first one came out he had so much fun with it that he said let's do another one and for the second one he wrote a new first chapter and last chapter to sort of bookend the old book uh set in the present day and i remember getting letters from people saying i don't understand how this is possible this book is copyrighted 19 whatever 1963 and in the first chapter there's a reference to video cameras How can that possibly be? Was the author so precognitive that he was able to come up with these technologies 50 years ago? And I didn't have the heart to explain that actually, no, he just wrote that chapter now. Hard case crime has been an adventure for me. And even though it would have been an even greater adventure if Ray were still alive and we could celebrate his 100th birthday with him and show him this book, and if I could have asked him, was the glass supposed to be half empty or completely empty? Why Chaplin? Why not Harold Lloyd? That would have made it even greater. But even without that, the chance to publish a book by an author that I first read at age seven or eight and who changed my world, who changed my life, who made me want to be a reader and want to be a writer, uh, who taught me so much about how writing is done, if done well. What an extraordinary opportunity that is. So many people never get to have any dialogue with their idols. And I get at least this kind of limited, one-sided chance to give an embrace to a man who I dearly feel I owe it to.
0: Mm, That's fantastic. And I'm really pleased that it is coming out this year, because otherwise we would have gone through Bradbury's centenary year without there being a particular book of his (laughs)
1: coming out. I remember having a conversation with Isaac Asimov. Toward the end of his life, I was asking him advice, where should I go to college, little things like that. And he said something kind to me. I don't know, he might have said it to other people too, and it's good if he did. Uh, he was very supportive and very kind. And he said something like, in the ordinary course, I would expect you to outlive me by 50 years because he was 70 something and I was coming up on 20. And I want you to promise me that when I'm gone, you will do something to make sure my name isn't forgotten. And I remember saying, oh, do, that's, that's a terrible thing to say. Don't say that. No, your name could never be forgotten. You've written 400 books. You know, the New York Times asked you for quotes every day. You're on television. And he said, no, no, just, Be certain of it that when 50 years have passed, no one will remember who I was unless someone who's alive then tells them. You know, the truth is, of course, people still remember Isaac Asimov, but not the way they did. Even five years after he was gone, even 10 years after he was gone, if you asked even a reasonably well-read younger person, they might say, oh, I kind of remember the name. Now it's more years still. Now it's been 28 years since he died. And uh, one of the things I did was publish an anthology of his crime stories called The Return of the Black Widowers. He had a series of stories about a gentleman's eating club where they solve puzzle mysteries. And I did that in fulfillment of that promise. I think Bradbury's name is still well-known and well-remembered and well-loved, maybe to an extent even that Isaac's is not. But even Bradbury, as the years pass, It's a little bit like Woody Allen said in his movie, Radio Days, the voices get softer and softer. And we have to do something to amplify them. And putting out a collection on his 100th birthday is one important way to amplify his voice again. It shouldn't be a whisper. It should be a shout. It should be a joyful shout. I don't know that I'll be around for his 150th. It would be extraordinary if I were, Uh, but hopefully somebody will be and somebody will do another collection then. There's only one hundredth, so I'm pleased and proud that we got to do it now. What's next for you
0: as, a, as an author or as a, an editor?
1: Later this year, we have a new novel and an old series that hasn't had any new entries in it for a very long time. Not nearly as well known, of course, but the author of Road to Perdition, a man named Max Allen Collins, used to write a series of books about a heister named nolan and his last nolan novel was written in the 1980s so it's been more than 30 years and we're bringing out the first new nolan novel in 30 plus years it's called skim deep Uh, not skin deep like beauty is but skim like skim milk that's coming out in november so it'll be a fun christmas treat for anyone who read those other books earlier in, in their lives and want to see what happened to the character next year we do have a new book by stephen king which is an extraordinary thing he's been incredibly kind and generous to us wrote two books for us before called The Colorado Kid and Joyland, and the new one is called Later, coming in March. And uh, we have a number of other exciting things coming by authors you would not have heard of. There's an author you definitely have not heard of because he just invented the name. We're publishing a book under the name James Kestrel. The author's real name is a bit of a mystery. We have not revealed who he is. He is an author who has won tremendous praise from major, major authors for his uh, first few books, which were a kind of crossover between science fiction and crime. Uh, But this book is very much squarely a crime story. It's a historical crime story set during World War II on the Pacific side of the war. It's a detective story, but it's a detective who gets embroiled with world-changing events. And it's probably the best new novel I've read in years. So I was thrilled to get to publish it. But we face an interesting challenge, which is if you publish Bradbury... The world knows Bradbury, as we were saying, perhaps the voice is quieter, but it's still there and the name still has currency. The world knows Stephen King. But how do you publish a book by an author that no one's ever heard of? Uh, It's a challenge, but this book is so deserving that we thought, let's take that challenge up and see if we can get people to to read this truly extraordinary book. Uh, It is one that you will not forget. It's called Five Decembers. By the end of the book, you'll know very well why it's called Five Decembers. I encourage you to read it when it comes out. The world keeps going, you know, even, even in the middle of a pandemic or a crazy election or all the other things that make our lives as difficult as they currently are. You have to keep living. And to me, that means you have to keep reading. For a writer, it also means you have to keep writing. And, and I hope to get my hand back to that soon. But life without reading, to me, is not life. And so I encourage everyone who listens to your podcast, as good as listening is, listening is also good. It's a form of reading with your ears. But I encourage you to find a good old fashioned book and press those words into your eyes one by one, just like in the old days. And you will find you have given yourself a gift, Uh, whether it's Bradbury or King or the anonymous James Kestrel. That experience of reading is going to enrich you. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but who knows, perhaps someone in one of the more distant pews will hear this and take us up on it, whether it's our book or not, uh, whether it's Bradbury or not. Very good advice.
0: If listeners would like to find out more about your work or Hard Case Crime, where can they look?
1: We have a website, www.hardcasecrime.com, H-A-R-D-C-A-S-E-C-R-I-M-E, just like you'd think with no punctuation. And that will give you a lot of information. Anyone who's on social media and goes on Facebook or Instagram and searches for Hard Case Crime will find some rudimentary pages there as well. But I admit I'm not very good at keeping those up to date. Um, You can go to any bookstore, of course. Uh, and if your local bookstore is, is smaller or has a more limited selection, uh, you can ask them to special order books from us, but you can also go online, and there's no shame in doing that. Uh, once, many years ago, before he started Amazon.com, Jeff Bezos and I were friends, co-workers on the same uh, floor in a Manhattan skyscraper. And I can tell you from long, long ago conversations, that is a man who grew up reading fantasy and science fiction. He was a Heinlein reader, mostly someone who cared about books deeply. So I I will never condemn anyone for going on the computer, typing that one ancient Greek word, and uh, finding access to the greatest library since Alexandria. It is a powerful tool, uh, if an imperfect one. And uh, you can find every book Hard Case Crime has ever published on there, and we are grateful if you do that.
0: My thanks once again to Charles Ardai for joining me today on the podcast. If you look on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, you'll find the show notes for today's episode, where I'll place purchasing links for the new book, Killer Come Back to Me, and also links to Hard Case Crimes' website. Thanks for listening, and join me next week for another Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.